This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. This is Richard Brust. I'm an editor at the ABA Journal in Chicago. And today we're interviewing Heidi Bogosian, who is the executive director of the National Lawyers Guild. Heidi is the author of a new book, Spying on Democracy, Government Surveillance, Corporate Power, and Public Resistance, which was published this summer by City Lights Books of San Francisco. Heidi also co-hosts the weekly Civil Liberties radio program, Law and Disorder, which airs on Pacifica's WBAI in New York and on more than 50 national affiliate stations around the country. She has published numerous articles and reports on policing, protest, and the First Amendment. Her book reviews have been published in The Federal Lawyer and The New York Law Journal. Heidi received her JD from Temple University Law School, where she was editor-in-chief of the Temple Political and Civil Rights Law Review. She also holds a master's degree from Boston University and a bachelor's degree from Brown University. And Heidi, there's no sense pretending we don't know each other. We were good friends in law school where we found out that we went to the same undergraduate college at practically the same time, although we didn't know each other then, but we know each other now. It's a pleasure to have you in Chicago to talk about your book and your work. Before we talk about spying on democracy, tell us a little, a little bit about what the National Lawyers Guild does. The National Lawyers Guild was founded in 1937, just after FDR won his second term. The goal was to create an organization that would use the law in the service of the people. Guild attorneys over the past eight decades have been involved in many progressive social movements representing individuals, often that the government, whom the government has targeted for their political beliefs, including individuals during the McCarthy era, uh, the Vietnam War protests, and more recently, individuals who have been accused of hacking. And other ci- cyber problems that have been going on all And over other cyber-related issues uh, in the information age. So your book, Spying on Democracy, examines the increasing monitoring of ordinary citizens and the corporations that work with the government to mine data collected from a wide range of electronic sources. How did you become interested in doing this work? For about 40 years, the National Lawyers Guild has served as legal observers to mass assemblies across the country, uh, defending the right to protest, often litigating First Amendment cases. Since the events of 9-11, and actually since the beginning of the anti-globalization movement, we've witnessed an increasing crackdown on uh, the exercise of First Amendment-protected activities around the country, including uh, police who go to protests in military paraphernalia and use less lethal weapons against passive crowds. We've also documented the use of informants and infiltrators in progressive and activist circles around the country, efforts to disrupt akin to the counterintelligence programs under J. Edgar Hoover, although perhaps operating on a subtle, not, subtle not level. Not as intensive. Not as, as intensive a level. Right. 
So I'd been interested in uh, the government's attention paid to activists in particular and knew that from the individuals who came to the Guild that many of them had in fact been monitored or had their homes visited by the FBI before large events and had gone to friends seeking information about politically active activities. I knew that organizations such as the Center for Constitutional Rights, the Chicago People's Law Office, and the National Lawyers Guild had been monitored over the past several decades for representing politically active clients, including members of the Black Panthers. The Guild had been monitored for three decades by the FBI. Our members' garbage had been gone through. Over a thousand agents were assigned to monitor us. In fact, we sued and in a rare instance, the FBI actually admitted that they had uh, been following us. So I knew that there was what we call a chilling effect on the attorney-client privilege because when lawyers suspect they may be monitored, uh, as has happened a lot since the events of 9-11, they have to alter the way that they do business with clients. They may have to meet in person or travel to foreign countries, watch what they say on the Internet, and that, too, has an effect on how the client really expresses him or herself with the attorney. That, that chilling effect that you have, that, that a lot of the spying has on lawyers, I know our readers and our, and our members are going to be very interested in that because it affects them directly. Have you seen, have people come to you complaining that they've been interrupted or that they, their information hasn't been able to, they haven't been able to talk to their, their clients? One guild attorney in Washington State actually uh, requested his Freedom of Information Act and State Information Act information and found the FBI had a file of mm -hmm. several hundred pages on him. In part, we think, because he has done politically active work over the past couple of decades representing protesters who engage in civil disobedience, and he's now working on a case in which the army has spied and disrupted peace groups in that state. But other attorneys, especially young ones who are aware of the history, express frustration and sometimes fear that by taking on high-profile cases or controversial cases in the eyes of the government, they may be exposing themselves uh, to surveillance and sort of be marked in a way as lawyers who represent clients of interest. Has, has a lot of this gone on after 9-11 or has this been going on? I know you mentioned before that this has been an ongoing trend, but the impression that I get from talking to a lot of lawyers is that 9-11 was sort of the, the, the turning point in a lot of decisions that judges make and a lot of uh, activity that goes on legally. Have, have you found out that as well? There's no doubt that 9-11 dramatically altered the landscape of uh, how we represent uh, clients, of how clients are perceived according to their history and the activities that they engage in. And a Bureau of Prisons regulation, for example, made it easier to monitor attorney-client communications. We also see more restrictive measures being taken against individuals who are politically active, including environmental activists, who have been put in communications management units mm -hmm. because they've been identified as people who are either leaders of, of movements around the country uh, or who others are watching. And it seems clear that in many cases 
strict government measures are taken to send a message that if you engage in representing uh, clients who are activists and who may be successful in the work they do or who criticize government and corporate policies, that we might hold you out as an example of what can happen to you. The, the corporate policy aspect that you just mentioned was very interesting to me in reading the book. Uh, and, and, and I have to compliment you on all the work you've done. The research has been on, incredible on this book. There seems to be an alignment with corporations and the government in terms of finding out information about individuals. Talk a little bit about that. How, does, how do the, those two aspects become so, so combined with each other? After the Cold War, we, recent, we, we witnessed a dramatic drop in military spending in this country. At the same time, information technology was rapidly developing and becoming more sophisticated. When 9-11 happened, those two factors coalesced to result in, really, I think, justification for ramping up military spending and for partnering with what were traditionally defense industries to farm out as we now have approximately 70% of our government intelligence, which is done by business. So, so consulted out pretty Consulted much. out. Couple that with what seems to be a revolving door between three and four star generals who retire and then work for private consulting uh, firms who then advise the government. And we know that uh, CEOs from groups like Boeing Microsoft, uh, other big corporations advise the president on his what's called the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee and really have a hand in shaping our information and telecommunications policies. We also have fusion centers created by the Department of Homeland Security which encourage collaboration between government intelligence agencies and big corporations. Let me just interrupt you for a, few, a fusion center. I know you've talked about that in your book. What, what does that mean? Well, after the 9-11 Commission issued a report citing gaps and serious problems in how intelligence is coordinated in this country, efforts were made to try to address those problems. And a lot of money was put into creating, I think there are about 76 so-called fusion centers across the country where uh, different levels of law enforcement would work alongside with corporate partners to collect and share data. The problem has been that instead of really improving the way we conduct intelligence, uh, these centers have been faulted by government oversight agencies as being wasteful highly expensive, and producing intelligence of subpar quality. So in fact, I think we've seen an additional layer of bureaucracy and uh, a melding of the already existing relationship between government and big business institutionalized in these centers, which many would say are not making us safer. The interesting thing about your book, among other things, is that there's a lot of information that's come out these days that plays off of what you've written about and what you've, and what you've been talking about. First, drones. I know that you mentioned them in your book, 
they seem to be able to make them about the size of small birds these days and allow them to fly over various areas. Talk a little bit about that. What does that indicate for us? Drones represent a trend in what we've seen along with the increase in defense spending and the cooperation between the public and private sectors in that there has been a general repurposing of traditionally military applications for civilian use, and I think drones are a good example of this. The drone lobbying industry has spent a fortune in pressuring Congress and the Federal Aviation Administration to open up civilian airspace for drones in the next decade. Why? Obviously, they see drones as the next frontier for law enforcement, I think, is, is the primary reason. Uh, although there are other good reasons that we could be using drones where there's danger, situations too dangerous to deploy a manned or personed aircraft above, say, a fire, a forest fire, or another dangerous situation, floods, emergencies. But the problem inherent in pushing for military applications to be used is that they're, they're ripe for abuse. And obviously, with drones, some of the things we're seeing are industry leaders looking to make, as you've mentioned, smaller drones the size of a mosquito that can then be deployed without our knowledge in dense urban areas to feasibly go into an apartment building and spy on an individual that the government is interested in without our knowledge. The law is not set yet, as technology has developed so quickly, it's really lagging behind in terms of what is a traditional Fourth Amendment violation. Because we can have a drone, obviously, over a, a city park, and that's not an area where anyone has an expectation of privacy. But then when it can go stealthily into one's apartment, one would argue that that is an invasion of privacy, especially if the apartment dweller is not notified that drone is hovering above him. But money is being devoted into not only creating small drones that can operate that way, but to have drones be able to hover in the air for very long periods of time, which raises another issue about the Fourth Amendment. It's different from photographing someone or being there for a few minutes. We're talking about a drone that has the capacity to stay and monitor you for days at a time. That's fascinating, and I'm sure that issue is going to come up before higher courts and before the Supreme Court eventually, which has dealt with the Fourth Amendment and its changing implications for technology. There's also an interesting piece of information going on now that has to do with Edward Snowden, who's a contractor for the National Security Agency, and he informed a reporter about a lot of the information that he had. This has changed not only international law, but also freedom of the press. Talk about that a little bit. How, the, how does that affect the work that you've done and the book that you've written? Edward Snowden has shown to many people who were probably not aware of the close partnership between government and corporations that so much analysis at a really top secret or secret level or at a classified level is being done by individuals again who are not who don't take the oath as our elected representatives and other officials do in government to uphold the constitution so we have corporations now gathering and analyzing highly personal data in vast quantities 
with a kind of impunity that, say, a person working for the Department of Defense, not as a contractor, has. And the problem with this is that uh, there is not the attendant oversight and accountability that we expect from government in conducting things like intelligence or national security. There's lack of transparency. Our uh, Congress is unaware of most of what is happening and how this intelligence is being conducted. And I think that many were, uh, quite frankly, shocked that a civilian contractor could have the level of access that Snowden and others do to information that used to be really guarded and held in the hands of a few. It's now being meted out to hundreds and thousands of people. The danger, of course, is that when we gather information on such a level, there are going to be inaccuracies in, in it, coupled with the fact that when it's not strictly in the hands of government, but rather in corporations, there's the possibility that that information can be tampered with, can be altered, can be stored, and then in the future retrieved for purposes that may be uh, unlawful themselves. We have no idea, but we do know that people who speak out and are critical of government and corporate policies are usually the ones that are then targeted by these entities to try to keep them quiet. Very interesting. In the last chapter of your book, you talk about some of the problems that occur with what I'll call the security state. Be a little perspective and tell us what you anticipate happening that hasn't quite happened yet. What kind of cases are we expecting to see? Uh, where are the problems going to be down the road? To answer that question, I think we need to reiterate that we have a massive apparatus in which both government and corporations benefit from this partnership financially. The fact that this country has built really an industry based on creating more technology of surveillance and being uh, at war, quite frankly, or invading other countries and having a perpetual so-called war on terror is what is fueling this partnership. And it does not show any signs of abating. Amazon was awarded, for example, $600 million in a CIA computer cloud contract, and corporations are competing to develop more sophisticated technology to do more surveillance. I think that the Snowden revelations have, uh, among many other positive developments, lawsuits that we saw being brought years ago in which the Bush and Obama administrations gave immunity to the large telecommunications industry against being sued and really in many cases were dismissed because the court said you cannot prove with certainty you're being monitored. That hopefully will be changing now and the Electronic Frontier Foundation has just filed a class action lawsuit with a number of groups because we know now the level of the surveillance. But I think that we will be seeing new legal challenges and hopefully a shifting as uh, judges from the FISA courts, for example, are coming forward in documents that have recently been declassified saying that secret interpretations of the laws by this administration are, in their minds, uh, faulty, ineffective, and that the whole surveillance setup as it is now 
is flawed and needs to be revisited. So I think we'll see a number of different, hopefully creative le uh, legal challenges to many different aspects of what we're slowly starting to see has been really the underpinnings of this apparatus. I think as more information comes out, uh, we'll have more challenges. We can't quite know what they are at this point. But this is a window of opportunity, really, for groups who have been monitored, individuals who have been monitored, to confront the telecommunications industry and our uh, elected officials to say that this is violative of the Fourth Amendment to be uh, free from unreasonable searches and seizures by the government. Heidi, it's a fascinating book. I'm so glad you came to Chicago. And on many levels, it's nice to meet up with you again. It's Heidi Bogosian, the executive director of the National Lawyers Guild, and her book is Spying on Democracy, Government Surveillance, Corporate Power, and Public Resistance. It's a wonderful book. Thanks, Heidi. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.